Good morning. You guys hear me okay? I was sick last weekend, so I lost my voice, so hopefully I'm not too hoarse or anything, but it just literally came back yesterday morning. Uh, okay, so I don't know about you guys, but I feel like right now I live in a world full of enemies. I feel like all I need to do is open Facebook or scroll through my Twitter feed or, God forbid, turn on the news, you know, or, and, and I'm just surrounded by images of what I would consider to be my enemies. Faces, um, symbols, clothing, colors, things that I would consider to be my, my enemies. And now, uh, you know, these are things like neo-Nazis marching down the street carrying torches, right? These are things like uh, politicians in other countries that are denying that genocide is happening in their midst. These are things like religious leaders in our country who are denying that climate change is happening while around them the world is being destroyed. Or political leaders in our country who want to restrict the rights of people or want to uh, tell people who can get married, who can't get married, want to tell people who belongs in our country and want to remove people that we love, people that we care about from our country, right? These, for me, are my enemies. And, and I just, I feel like I can't turn any place right now without seeing them or without being confronted with them face to face. Now there's this, there's this part in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus is talking to a lawyer, and the lawyer's trying to, trying to kind of trip him up and asks Jesus this really important question. He says, who's my neighbor? He's trying to get sort of an out out of Jesus for who he needs to care for. Uh, and, and for me, that's one of the most important questions or one of the most important points that comes up in any part of the New Testament. And similarly, we see this point in the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah, where a similar yet exactly opposite question kind of gets asked as we read the story and the tale of Jonah. And that is the question of, well, then who is my enemy? Or who should I consider to be my enemy? Now, Jonah, I think we all have heard about Jonah, right? It's one of what I would call the top 10 stories of the Bible. And who thinks that they're familiar with Jonah, right? And we're probably familiar with Jonah for one thing, and that would be Jonah and the whale, right? Or fish, right? Um, and that's usually where the story ends. Is, uh, it's a story that we see in children's books. We, it's a coloring page that we give to our kids in youth group. And we, we get this story of Jonah and the fish. Um, but we usually end story, we almost always end the story a little bit short. Uh, and, and we tell the, Jonah's a book of four chapters, it's a very short book, but we shrink it down to three chapters. And we actually remove this last chapter of Jonah, and it kind of ties the whole story up in a nice neat bow. But really, if you read the fourth chapter of Jonah, which is what we're going to look at today, you find that it's anything but neat. And it's kind of anything but a children's story. And, and so that's what, that's what we're going to look at today. Jonah's this bizarre story about this guy and this fish and these animals and this city. And, uh, and you, you kind of read it and you're going through it and you think, okay, well, this is kind of a weird story. And then you get to this fourth chapter and it sort of punches you in the chest. And you kind of stop and you realize that it's not a story about a man who lived a long time ago who was eaten by a fish, but it's really a story about each one of us. It's really a story about our hearts and a story about how we relate to other people. So what I'd like to do today, because Jonah's such a short story, is we're going to have a, just a real quick recap of the, 
of the story of Jonah, um, and then we'll read through the fourth chapter, and then we're going to talk about a little bit about what this means and what this means in relation to our enemies. So Jonah's a prophet, right? He's mentioned only one other time in the entire Bible, and that's this point in 2 Kings. Um, so not a very prominent figure outside of this one story that we all know and love. Uh, and Jonah comes from this community that's a part of ancient Israel. And at the time, ancient Israel had this enemy. This enemy was called Assyria. And now Assyria was the biggest, baddest, worst nation that could possibly be. Assyria hadn't just um, conquered the Israelites, but they had actually wiped out 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, totally wiped them off the map. They were some pretty bad people. Assyria is a nation that's located um, where modern-day Iraq is, and this, these were people who were brutal, they were violent, they were oppressive. They had this general practice, which was that they would, they would come in and they would ravage a city or a village, and then they would take all the leaders and they would flay them, they would skin them alive. And then they would take their skins and hang them outside of the next enemy city as a way of intimidating their enemies. These aren't good people that we're talking about, right? And they're destroying the Israelites. And so in the midst of this, God commissions his prophet Jonah, and he tells them to go to the capital city of Assyria, the city called Nineveh, and he tells them to preach to them. And not just to preach, not just to say, hey, everybody, God's good, just want to let you know, you know, but to actually go there and tell them off, to tell them that if they don't turn, if they don't change, God is vowing to destroy their nation. Uh, there's this translation that I really like in which God says to Jonah, hey, get up off the couch right now. Go to Iraq. Head for that great city of Nineveh. Yell at them and tell them that they are being so evil that their evil has waltzed right up into heaven, into my neighborhood, and is, and is making a big stink. Let them know that they've got my attention and I'm not pleased. In other words, this is God saying, hey, you know those people who have done you wrong for generations and for years? Those people who have hurt the people you love? Those people who have systematically made your life a living hell and have become your mortal enemy and the mortal enemy of your nation? I want you to go tell them off. And I don't know about you, but that's a call that I just wait for, right? Like, that's a good call. That's, that's you know, you're not going and saying and preaching grace or preaching mercy. You're going and saying, you know what, you're wrong. And, uh, and God actually told me to tell you you're wrong. That's a good, like, if you're a prophet, that's kind of, I think, what you hope for when you wake up in the morning. And so I was trying to come up with an illustration this week to tell the story of Jonah and to look back over it. And uh, one day I was on the, the iPhone store, the, the iOS store on my phone, and I came across this. If we can get a slide. So this is a, an iPhone game called Jonah Run. Um, it was made for Yom Kippur a few years ago, and actually Yom Kippur is this week, it's next Saturday, it's the most holy day of the Jewish calendar, um, but it's a game in which you can play through the story of Jonah as little happy Jonah up there, um, and it goes through three main sections, and so I think that this will be a fun way to, to kind of look at this story. So the three stages, if we go to the next slide, are we have the docks where Jonah's going to get on a ship, we have him on the ship, and then we have him inside this fish. And if we start, we're going to go to the docks. Let's go to the next. And so the Lord said to Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh. But Jonah got up and went in the other direction. And let's see how well that works out for him. So he's not just going in the other direction, right? He's going literally to the opposite side of the world. So there's our little happy Jonah, and he's got to jump over some obstacles and jump over pits and things like that to try to get as far away from Nineveh as humanly possible. 
And now games are fun, but I want to just step away from this image a little bit and, and go here, because I think it's really important that when we talk about these things, we remember that we're talking about real places in a real time. Um, see, these cities, Nineveh, Tarshish, Joppa, would have meant something to the original hearer. So let's see if they can mean something to us today. Here we have Joppa down here. Um, it's actually a city you can go visit today. Today it's called Jaffa. It's just F's instead of the P's. And it's still a port city. It's a, it's a major port city in the Mediterranean. Um, and then we have, of course, we talked about Nineveh, great city uh, of Assyria. It's, the, it's in Iraq. It's actually Mosul. or It's around Mosul in Iraq right now, which is a city that we hear in, our, in the news. It's the home at the time of about 120,000 of Israel's enemies, and as we'll see, a lot of animals too. And then we have this city called Tarshish. Uh, if we can go back to the map for a second. Uh, we have the city called Tarshish. Now what I want to get across here is this distance. So Jampa and Nineveh are about 550 miles away, and that's over land. Uh, that's about the distance, almost exactly the distance from here to Salt Lake City. So it's not that far, right? You could get there in a few days. But Tarshish, as you can see, Tarshish is actually, uh, it's a port city right at the Straits of Gibraltar. And so if you pass the port of Tarshish, you're out in the ocean. It's the very last place you can possibly get in the Mediterranean. And so if you're a person who's living in the Mediterranean, this is the edge of the world for you. This is the edge of the map. 2,500 miles, now that's the distance from here to New York City. That's the distance from here to Honolulu, or the distance from here to the equator. This is a really far way for some of you to go just to get away from the call, right? If we can go on. So then now we have Jonah. And after running for a bit, right, Jonah gets on a ship in Jaffa trying to get further away. The Lord sends a huge storm with towering waves. Maybe Jonah should reconsider. And here we have Jonah in our boat, and we can see our towering waves, big bad storm. Uh, now what happens here is that Jonah asks the other people on the ship to throw him overboard so that the storm won't destroy all of them and destroy the ship. And what happens when he gets thrown overboard? Uh, do we have a slide before that? If not, it's fine. Okay, that's fine. Um, so <coughs> God sends, my apologies, God sends a huge fish. Um, by the way, Jonah's an interesting book because the word huge happens everywhere. In, in two pages of my Bible, it happens 15 times. Everything in Jonah is giant, giant cities, giant fish. That's just an interesting thing for me. But Jonah sends, uh, the Lord sends this huge fish. And now here in the game, you can't run any longer. There's nowhere to really run when you're inside the belly of a fish. Not a lot of space. So Jonah has to get down on his knees and pray. So Jonah prays to God that God will save him. And he thanks God for saving him. And of course, God then spits Jonah out from the fish onto the land. And we have Jonah... There we go. This is the end of the game. Here's our happy little Jonah laying under the shade of a tree, kicking back, relaxing. You've stopped running and turned back to the Lord, and that's the end. Right? That's the, that's the end of the game. Well, in the story, there's a little bit more, right? Jonah then goes to the city of Nineveh. He preaches this sermon. The city of Nineveh repents, and then everything's happy. Except not, because there's this whole fourth chapter that we're going to look at today where we find this isn't the Jonah that we're really talking about, right? This, this Jonah just kind of relaxing like he's, I don't know, having a good day in the park, about to have a picnic or something, isn't the Jonah that we're talking about here. This really isn't his character. So we're going to pick up here. Uh, it's in your bulletin, Jonah 310, and we'll read through the end of chapter 4. 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became very angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish in the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under, under it in the shade, waiting to see what would happen to the city, or what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give him shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? Kind of an interesting way to end a book, right? Just sort of stops there. God makes a statement and it, it kind of just ends. So Jonah, at this point, has just brought Israel's greatest enemy into the flock, right? He's brought them under the, under the umbrella of God. Any other prophet at this point would be jumping up and down, would be like this, would be just relaxing and rejoicing. I can take the rest of the day off because I just brought 120,000 of the worst people ever into the flock of God. But of course, Jonah isn't that way, right? Jonah's pissed off about this. Right? God, God changes his mind about destroying the city, and Jonah's just, just mad and just sulking. God gave Jonah the opportunity of a lifetime and to tell his enemy off. Right? There's only two ways this could have gone, really. Either the, uh, the city repented, like it did, and then any prophet would be super happy, or at worst, the city doesn't repent, and God destroys the city, and that could have only meant good things for the people of Israel. Like That would have been a fine option also. If you're an Israelite and these people have destroyed 10 of the 12 tribes of your, of your people, it's like, okay, good, either way, I'll just go tell them and then I can be gone and, uh, and, you know, and whatever, you, whatever you want to do, God, that's good with me. But, but Jonah takes off in the opposite direction, as we, as we obviously know, right? And, and why does he do that? Is it, it's not because he's scared. It's not because he's scared that he's going to lose his life because these people are violent. And it's not because he's scared of talking in public uh, or anything like that. We're going we're gonna to dig into that a little bit here. But he goes into the city and he preaches what in Hebrew is a four-word sermon. Probably the sh- maybe the shortest sermon in the Bible. I'm not sure about that. Um, the sermon, and in, in English, it's not very much longer. In English, it's only eight words. Forty days more and Nineveh will be destroyed. And I heard it said from one of my favorite pastors that you can imagine Jonah kind of like when one sibling is forced to apologize to their brother or sister. 
right? And he, he really doesn't want to be there, and so he's got his hands in his pockets, and he's just scuffing his feet, and he's just kind of barely mumbling, you can, 40 days more, and Nineveh will be destroyed, <laughs> right? And he just kind of says it, and he gets out of there. It, and it's, a, it's an interesting sermon, too, because Jonah doesn't mention the name of God, right? He doesn't say God's going to destroy Nineveh. He doesn't tell them to change anything. He doesn't tell them to repent or to turn away or if you stop killing people, it'll be fine. He doesn't tell them anything like that. He just tells them they're going to be destroyed. And, and even if you read the, the text, it says Nineveh's a city that's so big it would take three days just to walk to the center of it. And Jonah walks one day into the city, stops at some random corner in front of some random people, says these four words, and then gets the hell out of town. Like, just on a, you know, on a random corner in L.A., somebody just stops, says this thing really quietly under his breath, and then walks away, and the whole city changes. Just like that, it reaches the king, everybody, you know, repents, even the animals repent, because it's such a powerful sermon that Jonah preached in these four words. But why does Jonah, why doesn't he want to do this, right? And he tells us, he tells us right here in his words, he tells God and, and tells us exactly why he didn't want to do it. Oh Lord, is it not what I said when I was in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Now this is something that uh, when you study the Bible, you, you, you see this come up a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, it shows up all over the place. This is what we would call the attributes of God. The first place it shows up is in the book of Exodus. Um, but you kind of, you see these repeated a lot. So the, to the first hearer, these would have been very common r- words and attributes to them. Merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. These are all good things, right? None of these are negatives. So why is Jonah upset? Because he's the opposite. And because he doesn't want God to be this way, at least not to them. He's totally fine with God being this way to him and to his people and to his tribe, but he doesn't want God to act that way towards the people that he would consider to be his enemy. Another way you could put this is, God, I'm pissed because you love to forgive people who I don't think deserve it. And so often, whether we want to be this way or not, whether we admit it or not, whether we hide it, we're exactly the same way about the people around us. Right? We Christians, we love this word grace. We throw this word grace around a lot. We sing about it. We talk about it. We uh, put it in our Instagram posts. We kind of just have this word grace everywhere. And grace is this amazing and beautiful thing. And in many ways, in a lot, I mean, in a lot of ways, grace is the reason why I'm here and the reason why I still claim this tribe and claim this faith. But there's a problem with grace There's a really big problem with grace. Because not only is grace fantastic and amazing and beautiful, but it's dangerous and it's scandalous. And really, we only like grace to a point if we actually stop and we think about it. For me, the single hardest part about being a Jesus follower, the absolute single hardest part, is to come to an understanding that not only does God's grace and God's love and God's mercy extend to me and the people that I love and the people that I agree with, and the people who use the words that I like to use, but that it actually extends to everybody else, even the people I hate, even the people I can't stand, the people I don't want to be in the same room with. 
We don't get to stand there and say, great, like I'm happy with this, thank you God, everything's wonderful, and they're cool, and that person's cool, and that person, but not that person. They need to stand outside because they did something else, or they don't think the same way that I do, right? I call this wild grace. It goes wherever it wants to go, no matter how much we may try in our culture, in our words, to domesticate it, to put it in a box where it looks like our tribe, where it talks like our people, where it thinks like we think, even if we're completely convinced, as we are, that the way that we think is the right way, the way that we think is the justified way, right? It breaks free. Notice how it shows up in this story, right? We have, we have two parties, two main parties in this story. We have Jonah, the good guy. We have Ninevites, the Ninevites, the bad guy, right? The Ninevites are demonized, right? They're the enemy, they're the bad people, and yet they're the ones who turn immediately, And then we have Jonah, and Jonah actually hears the direct voice of God several times. Even after he does bad things, God comes to him three separate times in just what we read today and says, no, you're wrong. No, isn't this? And like tries to nudge him into coming into right thinking with God. And yet Jonah just can't accept it. He continues to do the opposite of what God is telling him to do. Jonah, we see this complete deconstruction of our categories of neighbor and enemy and of our understanding of what an enemy is to God. And understanding this, I think, maybe that's an oversimplification, because that's not even the hard part for me. Because I can kind of conceptualize the fact, well, okay, God loves everyone, God's up there, you know, whatever, and really it doesn't matter who they are, maybe he's not happy with them, right, because they're doing bad things, but God loves everyone, sure. It's something completely different to think about the fact that maybe God might want me to do that as well. It's not just his conceptual love for everybody, but it's something that happens in my heart. And that's something that, frankly, most days I can't accept. And certainly not when I'm turning on the news and scrolling through Facebook and and that kind of stuff. And especially when the wideness of God's grace and mercy includes those people that I hate, those people that have hurt me and wronged me, and those people that I'm just completely convinced don't deserve it. Absolutely convinced don't deserve it. All of a sudden, this quote-unquote good news that we hear from God, just, it becomes bad news. It becomes disturbing to me. It becomes something that I, I want to push away from. Right? But this is the story of the gospel. This is God's gracious and liberal mercy for everybody. This is what happens on the cross. This is what Jesus says time and time again. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If you really, like, if you, if you slow down a second and think about what, even what Jesus is asking us to do there, it just starts to sound crazy. It starts to sound kind of absurd and, and really, really difficult. And this doesn't mean, obviously, this doesn't mean just accepting everyone no matter what they do, right? People still act in crazy ways. People still act in opposite ways of what God wants them to do. People are still in the wrong that's different, right? Calling people out, right? The, just because God's grace extends to the Ninevites doesn't mean that they, did, that they were doing a good thing or that they don't have to repent from what they were doing, right? Or that they were always in right standing with God. But it means that God never stopped offering them his grace and never stopped offering them his love because the wild grace of God was right there and always waiting for them. And so if we go back to our original question of who is my enemy, right? Because that's what we began here with. 
we find that our enemies, my enemies, are different from God's enemies. And that's because my enemies have faces. And they wear certain clothing, and they speak with certain words. They're individuals. If I, if I close my head right now, and you can probably do the same, if I think about any part of my, any one of my enemies, I can imagine a face or a stereotype, like you're kind of a stereotype face, right? I can see that person whose, whose face is up there on, on the news or who is in, you know, whose picture is in those articles, who's, who's doing that marching or doing that yelling at other people or leading that country, as the case may be, right? I can imagine these people really, really easily. But God's enemies aren't people. They're actions and they're ideologies, but they're never people because God's grace is always extending to those people. And so this is the real question that this story brings us. I just want one more time us to to go back to our story and just to notice how how this story ends. God here is speaking to Jonah, right? And he says, Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left, and also many animals, question mark? The question needs an answer, right? This book just, that's it. Next story ends on a question. Move on with the, the next book of the Bible. And that's the, that's the end of the, of the whole book. And this book ends with a question for a very important qu- reason, because it doesn't matter what Jonah's answer is in that moment. The book isn't concerned with Jonah's answer. The writer's not concerned with Jonah's answer, and neither is God it leaves us as readers to answer the question for ourselves because it's our answer here that really, really matters. And that is how are our, in light of this moral tale, right, light of this parable, in light of this understanding of who our enemies are and God's enemies, the question is how am I living in response to this question of God's? And the first step towards this kind of idea, towards this sort of loving our enemy in what we see here in Jonah, is this recognizing of the common humanity and common brokenness that we all show. And this is where God is leading Jonah in the story, right? To just say, I'm concerned about you as a one individual who keeps doing exactly the opposite that I tell him to do, and I keep having to go out of my way time and time again and bring a fish and bring some waves and bring a plant to teach you this one person this lesson. And yet, here's this group of people, 120,000 people. Is it not right for me to con- be concerned with them too? Even though they're terrible, terrible people? Don't you see? Shouldn't I be, shouldn't I care about the misguided? Aren't you misguided also? Don't I care about you in spite of your own misguidedness? Even if your misguidedness is not nearly in your mind as bad as theirs? Right? Because this isn't a story about God and Nineveh or about God and, un- and the unrepentant prophet, as I've often heard this kind of, kind of called. It's the story about God and the whole people and his trying to open their hearts and see how much everyone needs this thing called grace. And to close here, I tried to come up with a, I tried to come up with a way to close my sermon out. And there's this pastor out of Denver that I really love. Her name is Nadia Bowles-Weber, and she... I listened to this sermon from her, from hers a long time ago about Jonah, and I couldn't come up with any words that were better of my own or that I liked better. So I, 
I want to close with a quote from her. God loves you. God loves your enemies. God loves those who love your enemies, which means God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards me, even though I am in all likelihood someone else's enemy. How many generations, how many layers of divine mercy do we need before we get the message? And I just wonder if if maybe good news is only good news if it's good news for everyone. If not, it's just our own schemes. Which again is why sometimes I like to say that the gospel is like the worst good news I've ever heard. And I think Joan understood that. 